Okay, well, please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll be starting a new uh, book today, the book of Hebrews, and we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll begin reading in one, verse 1 and we'll read to verse 4. There the word of Christ says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a far more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking that, Lord, not only today, but through the entirety of our study of the book of Hebrews, Lord, that you would convince us more and more. Lord, that you would give to us even greater certainty, Lord, greater clarity, greater conviction in the superiority of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would see that he is the only Savior of the world. Lord, he is the only one that we can come to and to have our sins cleansed from us. The only way that we can be made righteous in your sight is through him. And Lord, He is the heir of all things. He is the one seated at the right hand of God the Father. Lord, He is the one who will inherit this entire world and everyone will be subjected to Him. So Lord, may we have confidence in Him. And Lord, may we have such confidence that even in the midst of our sufferings, Lord, even in our trials and temptations in this life, that Lord, we are unwavering in our faith, in our conviction, in our devotion to Christ. So, Lord, we pray that you would use this study, Lord, to strengthen us in our faith. Lord, that we would have an anchor for our souls. Lord, one that is steadfast and immovable. And that, Lord, we would not be like a wave of the ocean that's tossed to and fro, but rather that we would be firm and stable in our faith and our devotion to you. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, again, today we're starting the book of Hebrews, and this book is very important in helping us understand the proper interpretation of the Bible. Right? Many of the false teachings and heresies that exist in Christianity, if you go back to the very beginning, uh, even uh, go back to the early, early times, even up to the present time, much of the false teaching that exists in the church stem from a corrupt understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this is why we've said the books of Romans, Galatians and Hebrews are the most important in terms of understanding the Bible as a whole. For in these books, the apostles are treating so many topics that show the proper relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the occasion for the book of Hebrews is the reality of suffering. The book of Hebrews is written to the church who has believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ but is now facing suffering because of their faith in Christ. And as a result of these sufferings, they are experiencing doubts. Their faith is shaky. They are wavering because of the sufferings, and they're being tempted to abandon Christ. 
to abandon Christ and go back to the Old Testament rituals apart from Christ. This is what they're being tempted to do. And in the midst of these trials and temptations, the holy apostle writes to them, exhorting them to maintain the faith, urging them to endurance and to perseverance and to not give up and to not forsake Christ. Which brings us to the question, how would we encourage someone in affliction? How would we address those who are suffering? How would we preach to those who are being persecuted for the faith? Many people, most people, would speak love to them. They would speak grace to them. They would want to tell them of the kindness and mercy of God. Many would want to encourage them by speaking tenderly to those who are suffering. And certainly, the book of Hebrews has such words of encouragement. But it also has many words of admonition. And would we speak these kinds of words to those who are suffering, who are having their goods plundered, who are being thrown into prison, who are even having their lives threatened because of their faith in Christ? Would we say things like this? Chapter 2, verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or what about chapter 3, verse 12? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 13. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by though this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. Chapter 10, 26 says, If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Chapter 10, 31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 12, verse 25 says, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And then chapter 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Would we say these things to those who are suffering persecution, who are suffering affliction? who are being tried in this way? Well, the Holy Apostle does. He reminds them over and over again of the judgment of God that will come upon them if they turn away from Christ. He puts them in the fear of the Lord. He places the reality of judgment before them in order to produce the fear of God in them so that they will not abandon the faith. And so we too need the fear of the Lord. If we are going to endure if we are going to make it safely into the heavenly kingdom, then it is by our endurance. Jesus says, by your endurance, you will gain your life. And what do we need for our endurance? Well, we need both words of encouragement and we need words of admonition. And Hebrews gives us both of them. So that we do not grow weary in doing good, but we press on into the kingdom of God. And this is what we must do. And he places before us, the superiority of Christ. Christ Jesus is placed before us in Hebrews as the only source of salvation. And if we are cut off from Christ, then there is no hope of salvation, but only the expectation of judgment. So we must cling to Christ with all of our might, 
even if it means, means the plundering of our goods, even if it means that we are mocked and ridiculed, even if it means that our family forsakes us, even if it means that we're thrown in prison, or even if it means that we lose our life. If we have Christ, then what can man do to us? What can they do to us? They can do nothing. So we must persevere, and that is why we have this given to us. So it is a very uh, practical book, practical in terms of our endurance and perseverance in the faith. So let's look to Hebrews chapter 1, and we'll begin with verses 1 and 2. It says there, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. It is very important that here at the beginning we read carefully and that we're not misinterpreting what the apostle is saying. Because if we misunderstand this in these opening verses, then we're going to go askew throughout the whole book. And it's going to throw our faith off and we're not going to understand the word of God correctly. So it's important for us to understand what he is saying and what he is not saying. And here the apostle is not saying the Old Testament is bad and the New Testament is good. He is not saying that the Old Testament is inferior and the New Testament is superior. He's not saying that the Old Testament has one message and the New Testament has a new and a different message. He's not saying that the Old Testament is about law, it's about works-based salvation, it's about the wrath of God, and the New Testament is about love, grace, and salvation. He is also not saying that the Old Testament is focused primarily on the physical world and the New Testament is focused on the spiritual world and focused on the life to come. This is how many people view the distinction, the contrast between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But this is a false understanding and it will lead to many, many heresies, many false beliefs, many false thought doctrines and theologies, false morality that exists in the church today is because of a false understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and New. Typically, Old Testament is bad, New Testament is good in their own corrupt mind. In no way, shape, or form is the apostle making such a declaration, such a contrast. He is not seeking to divide the Bible. He's not trying to put the Old Testament against the New Testament or the New Testament against the Old Testament so that the message of the one contradicts the message of the other. And this cannot be the case because of the very first word of the book of Hebrews. Because notice what he says. Long ago to the fathers by means of the prophets and in the last days by means of the son. Whether we're talking about the prophets or whether we're talking about the son, who is the one speaking? He says, God. It is the same God. The same God who spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets has also spoken in these last days in his son. If God is the one speaking in both scenarios, in both times, then it is impossible that the message of the one would contradict the other. Otherwise, God would be a God of contradiction. The message of the old and the message of the new are not in contradiction, but rather they are in perfect harmony with one another. And this will be clearly displayed throughout the book of Hebrews. And this is because it is the same God, one God, who is speaking. And it is impossible that God would tell the fathers to be saved by the law, that he would tell them to be saved by the blood of animals, and then would tell us today to be saved by faith, to be saved by the blood of Christ. 
It is impossible in terms of morality that God would tell them that adultery is a sin and then would tell us today that adultery is not a sin. How could God do such things? It is impossible because God does not change. As it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it says in Numbers that he does not lie or change his mind. He who is the glory of Israel, he does not do these things. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. But rather, we see here at the beginning that it is God who spoke through the prophets and it is God, the same God, who spoke through the Son. The message he spoke to the prophets is the same message he spoke through the Son. So whether we are reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, the prophets, or the apostles, we know for certain that God is the one speaking and His words are always true. We must reject any idea that the Old Testament prophets are inferior or corrupt in comparison to the New Testament. Let's see this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll see that this view aligns with the view of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not believe the law and prophets were inferior to his own ministry or to the New Testament. Matthew 5:17 says, "Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there Jesus himself He does not have this view that he came to abolish the law and the prophets. No, he came to fulfill them. His message, his ministry, his life is in perfect keeping with what the prophets predicted. What they foretold would happen was accomplished in Jesus Christ so that they are in perfect harmony with one another. And this must be the case because of 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 20 and 21. Rather, 2 Peter 1, sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse 20. 2 Peter 1, 20 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So the prophets were not writing their own ideas, their own opinions, their own interpretations, their own observations on life and God and what they thought. Rather, they were writing by the Spirit of Christ within them. They were moved by the Spirit so that what they delivered to the people is indeed the Word of God. And this is why the apostle can say that God spoke through them. He spoke through these men. So we must establish at the very beginning that there is no contradiction between the prophets and between the Son, between the Old and the New, in the New Testament. But rather, God has indeed spoken through the prophets, and God has indeed spoken through the Son. 
So then, why the contrast? What is the contrast? What is its purpose? Well, this is the contrast he's making. First, they were prophets. They were prophets. They were holy men of God who were guided by the Spirit of God, but they were only men. They were mere men. They were not the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. They were writing about the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. They were telling the people to put their hope in the Messiah, in the Christ who was to come, but they themselves were not the Christ. But when the Son came, He was the Christ. He was God in human flesh. They were not God in human flesh. He was. He was the divine, eternal Son of the Father. So the person of Christ is greater than the person of Moses, the person of Jeremiah, the person of Isaiah, the person of David. His person is greater because they were mere men. He is God in human flesh. He is the Son of God. Also, he says that God spoke in the prophets long ago, in many portions and in many ways. From Adam until the last prophet that arose in the Old Testament, it was a period of about 3,600 years. And from the perspective of ourselves, it's about 6,000 years ago. And from the early uh, church, the, the ones that he's writing to here, it was about 4,000 years before them. Long ago, when the first prophet appeared, the first prophet being Adam, and then we know that Abel also was a prophet of God, and then the prophets of old in the days before the flood. That took place many, many years ago, whether from our perspective or from their perspective as well. And even the closest prophet to them, when this is being written, was four to five hundred years, which is a very long time ago. So it was a long time ago, and it was over many, many years, over 3,600 years that God spoke in the prophets. And he spoke to them in many portions and in many ways. He used different means to communicate his will to the prophets, and then the prophets would communicate that to the people. Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 to 8. Numbers 12, verse 6, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly and not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant against Moses. Here he states that with the prophets, God speaks in visions, he speaks in dreams. In the case of Moses, he would meet with him face to face in the tent of meeting, and he would communicate his will to Moses. Many portions in many ways. Over a long period of time, this is how God spoke to the prophets. He would reveal himself to them in these ways. So this is how he spoke to the fathers. Long ago, many portions in many ways. In contrast, he says, in these last days, he has spoken in his son. During the three and a half years of Jesus's public ministry, God flooded the world with truth from heaven. 
in the person of Jesus Christ. In his life, in his person, in his words, everything about him was revealing truth from heaven, revealing the very will and the very word of God. God the Father spoke directly to the Son, and then the Son spoke directly to the people and did not go through some human messenger like the prophets of old. But the Son of God in human flesh spoke directly to the people and told them, this is who God is. This is the will of God. This is the glory of God. And while it is true that Jesus did use parables sometimes, he also spoke to them clearly, straightforwardly, forthrightly. This is how he delivered the word of God to the people. John chapter 10. John 10 Verse 24, John 10, 24, the Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. There, they want Jesus to speak plainly to them as if he's not speaking plainly. And he says, I have told you plainly. I have told you clearly. I'm not speaking in riddles. I'm not using ambiguous, vague words in order to describe who I am and what I've come to do. I'm speaking very plainly to you, but you don't believe. You do not believe my word. Also, John 14. John 14, verses 8 and 9. John 14, well, actually, let's start in verse 7. It says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Could Moses make that declaration? Could Moses say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Could David say that? Could Isaiah say that? Could Jeremiah or any other prophet say to the people, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father? They could declare God's word to the people. They could say, thus says the Lord to them. But they could not say, to see me is to see the Father because I am the exact representation of his nature. They could not say this, but who could? Jesus could. So when Jesus was here, this is how he was revealing the word of God to the people. The Son of God became flesh and dwelt among the people. And in his person and in his life was displayed with finality, with clarity, the divine truth of God. God inundated the world with truth from heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of all that the prophets prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. And this took place. The incarnation of the Son of God, him dwelling among them, He says, in these last days, these last days, the last days referring to the period of time that began at the first coming of Christ, his incarnation, and will culminate and come to an end at the second coming of Christ. So whether we're speaking to the uh, Christians who were the book of Hebrews was written to the original audience, they lived in the last days. But who else lives in the last days? 
We live in the last days and everyone in between. And as long as this world continues as it currently is, everyone who lives in the future also will live in the last days because that is the time period between the first and second coming of Christ. 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter 3, verses 3. 2 Peter 3, 3 to 13. says, knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There he says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. This will be the ridicule, the mocking, that they're going to mock when we preach about the second coming of Christ. When we preach about the day of judgment in the last days, any period between the first and second coming of Christ, they're going to mock us and ridicule us because we believe and we're living for the second coming of Christ. And they say, no, nothing's going to change. It's all going to continue just as it always has. The world will continue forever and ever and ever. And we don't need to worry about the life to come. We don't need to worry about the day of judgment. So we are living in the last days, but so were the Christians to whom the letter was written. They lived in closer proximity to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Some of them may have even been alive and witnessed some of his ministry. And for certain, they were alive during the ministry of the apostles because an apostle is writing this letter to them. So God has spoken. That's the point he's making. He spoke first in the prophets, and then now he's spoken in his son. But the message of both is one in the same, namely that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So do not forsake Jesus Christ to avoid persecution. Do not think that you can reject Jesus and still hold on to the prophets, still hold on to the Old Testament. Right? This is a common misconception, whether in their day or in our own, that the unbelieving Jews love the Old Testament, that the Jews were strict followers of Moses and the prophets. But how can they adhere to Moses and the prophets who reject the one of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote? 
namely Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. As it says in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Ultimately, to reject the son is to reject the father, who is the one who spoke to the prophets and to the fathers and to us in these last days. So you cannot claim to have the Father without the Son. And you cannot claim to have Moses and the prophets without the Son. You can't do that. You cannot have any of them without the Son. You cannot live in the truth without believing in the Son of God. For He is the full, final manifestation of divine truth from heaven. We must believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins because he is the only source of eternal salvation and he is the only one that God has spoken to us through, whether in the prophets or in the Son. Now, who is the Son? Who is the Son? How should we view him? How should we view him? Because everyone believes in Jesus or they say that they believe in Jesus, right? There, You see this in many ways. You see it on billboards, that Jesus uh, was a... Have you seen the billboard that says Jesus was a refugee? And then at the bottom it says, He gets us. And then there's another one that says, Jesus hated hypocrisy. And then at the bottom it says, He gets us. Which He did hate hypocrisy, like the people that wrote that sign. Okay, so many people believe in Jesus. The Mormons believe in Him. The Jehovah's Witnesses believe in Him. The Muslims believe in Him. The Hindus believe in Him. The Buddhists believe in Him. Everyone claims Jesus. But who is this Jesus? Who is the true Jesus? How do we view him? What must we believe about him? Well, he tells us. Notice Hebrews chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. It says, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Here, the apostle says, he says more in these two verses than what you'll hear in an entire year in the average Christian church. Right? If they just got up and read these two verses, they would be better off than most of the sermons that they preach. There's so much truth, so much content You could spend years unfolding and looking at references in the Old Testament and in the New Testament describing what he's saying here about the Son of God. So much truth packed into these few phrases. First, he appointed him heir of all things. God the Father has ordained that his Son, Jesus Christ, will be the heir of all things. He has appointed him as the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Jesus Christ. The whole world, the fullness of it, all of it is his. It all belongs to Christ and he will inherit the entire world. It is his for an inheritance. Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And also it says in Luke 1.33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever 
and his kingdom will have no end. This belongs to Christ and to Christ only. Now, there are many people today, petty kings, petty men, who have aspirations, dreams of ruling the world. They want to rule the entire world. This has always been the case from the very beginning of time. Men want to rule the world. They think that it belongs to them. Even this last week in Switzerland, in Davos, there was the World Economic Forum where the masters of the universe met, plotting out their plans, their chart for the world and for all of us and how we should live, right? How we should live, eating bugs and not owning any property and all driving electric cars that run off trash and don't go anywhere at all. This is what they want for all of us. And they think the world is theirs and it is up to them to chart everything in the world and to make all these plans and to uh, uh, tell everyone what they're going to do because the world belongs to them. But who does the world belong to? It does not belong to them. It does not belong to any other man, any other great king in the history of the world. It all belongs to Jesus Christ. This is why they rage against him, according to Psalm 2. They don't like it. They don't want it. They don't want to submit to Christ. But whether they like it or not, it doesn't matter. Because God, the Father, has made him heir of all things. God has given it to his Son. And who will stop God from doing what he wants? Who can thwart the divine will of God Almighty? They cannot do anything to stop God from doing what he wants. This is what he has decreed. He gives it to his son, Jesus Christ. He will inherit the entire world. So then, why should we be afraid of men? Why should we cower and tremble before men, even if they threaten to take away all of our possessions, even if they threaten to take our very lives? Because Christ is the heir of all things. And those who belong to him, those who are united by faith to Christ, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, not only will he inherit the world, but who else will inherit it? We will. We will inherit it alongside of him. It belongs to him, but he will share it with us. So even if faith in Christ leads to the plundering of all of our property, even if the confiscation of all of our goods, then that's okay. Because in the end, we're going to get it all back anyway. We're going to get it back and infinitely more. We're going to inherit the whole world with Christ in the life to come. This is what it says in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 16 to 17. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we also may be glorified with him. Christ is the heir, not us, primarily. We become heirs through him, provided we suffer with him, which again, the Hebrew Christians are being tempted to turn away from Christ, to forsake Christ because of their suffering. But if you turn away from Christ, if you don't suffer with him, then you're not going to inherit with him. You're going to have the loss of all things in the end. So this is why if we lose our life now, we will gain it in the life to come. But if we keep our life now, we'll lose it in the life to come according to our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, he says, through whom also he made the world. The Son created the heavens and laid the foundation of the world. 
God the Father created the world, and he did it through God the Son, through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God created the world through him and for him. Hebrews 1 verse 10 says, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. There, the apostle tells us that when this was written in Psalm 102, it's written about the Son, not about the Father, but about the Son. He is the one who laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of his hand. Also in John chapter 1, John 1, John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. All things came into being. All of creation has its life, came from the Son. He gave it life from the Father and from the Son. And we remember in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30, speaking of Christ at the creation of the world, it says, I was beside him as a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. This is true of the Son. If Jesus Christ created the world, as the scripture so clearly teaches, then that means he himself is uncreated. He is not a created being, but rather he is eternal God. He is the eternal God. We are mortal. We are temporal. Our existence is contingent on him, but he is immortal, right? He is eternal. He has life in himself. He depends on no one, but he himself is the source of all life. He is the one that created the world and he gives life to all men. And also, doesn't this mean that our enemies, our tormentors, that they also are mortal men, that they are only flesh and blood, they are temporary creatures. So why would we fear them if Jesus is on our side? If the eternal Son of God is for us and with us, if He's on our side and His Holy Father and His Holy Spirit, then why would we be afraid of men? What can they do to us? Absolutely nothing apart from His will. We must believe that Jesus Christ is God, who created the world and all that is in it. Any theology, any religion, any philosophy, any cult, any denomination that detracts from the person of Christ, from the full humanity and the deity of Christ, from his true identity, is undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not enough that someone says, I believe in Jesus. It is not enough that they say and have high thoughts about Jesus if their thoughts do not rise to this position, that he is eternal God, that he is the creator of the world, then it is not sufficient. Muslims, they believe that Jesus was a prophet, a great prophet. The, uh, the only prophet greater is Muhammad, the pedophile. That's what the Muslims believe, that Jesus was a great prophet. The Hindus, the Buddhists, they say that Jesus was a great philosopher, that he was a great guru but not the Son of God. 
the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus is a God or the first created being, but they do not believe that he is the eternal Son of God who is equal with the Father. Well, these are not sufficient. They do not believe in the true Christ because they don't believe in the true identity of Christ. We must believe in the true Christ, the true Jesus, the Son of God, the one described in Hebrews chapter 1. Next it says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus Christ is the exact and only true representation of God. We come to know God the Father only through His Son. The Son reveals the Father, and we have no doubt as to the nature of the Father because the Son perfectly represents the Father for us because He is the radiance of His glory. He is the exact representation of His nature. So to see the Son is to see the Father. Not to see 90% of the Father, not to see some of the Father, but the exact perfect representation of the Father. So that if we come to know the Son, we know the Father. We know Him and we see Him in the Son. Everything we need to know about God, we learn through His Son, Jesus Christ. His nature, His attributes, His glory, all perfectly manifested in the Son. And this is not simply true from the New Testament onward. But this has always been the case. From the very creation of the world, from Adam to the end of the world, any man who has ever come to know the true God, to come to know the Father, has come to know Him through the Son. He, the Son, is the only mediator between God and man. And it is through Him that we come to know the Father at all times. John 1. John 1, 14 to 18. John 1, 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. No one at any time. Not in the time of Adam. Not in the time of Abraham. Not in the time of Moses or David or any other prophet. No one has ever seen God the Father at any time. But the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained or revealed Him. He revealed God the Father to Abraham. He revealed Him to Moses. He revealed God the Father to David and to all of the prophets. Because who are the prophets writing about? They're writing about the Son and what He will do, what He will accomplish. In many different ways, they are speaking about the Son of God and what He will do in His life and in His ministry by way of prediction, by way of Prophecy, And then the apostles are declaring that what the prophets predicted have been fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, in Him perfectly. So God is the invisible God. We come to see and know the invisible God only through His Son. We see the glory of the Father as it shines upon us through His Son. And this is as we read earlier 
from John 14, when Philip asks, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough. And he says, don't you realize, have I been with you this long that you don't know, you don't understand these things? That if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What else do you need? So why are you asking me to show us the Father? The only way a man can come to know God is only by seeing the invisible God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who perfectly manifested the glory of the Father, who is the exact representation of his nature. So again, anyone, whether a false religion, a philosopher, a spiritist, a mystic, whoever it is, anyone who claims to have knowledge of God or seeks to explain to us aspects of the unseen, invisible spiritual world, but does so apart from Jesus Christ, we know immediately that person is a liar. Whatever dream, whatever vision they have, it is a lie, it is from the devil, it is not from God. Because there's no true knowledge of God, there is no true knowledge of unseen spiritual realities apart from Jesus Christ. He is the one who reveals God to us. Next, he, Jesus, upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is not only the creator of the world, he is also the sustainer of this world. He is the one upholding the world right now, the world that he created by the word of his power. All the things necessary in this world, we typically call them natural laws, but they're not natural in that they came from nature. They're natural in that this is the way things work in nature. This is the way things work in the day-to-day running of this present world. But who is the one that created these laws? And who is the one that keeps them in place? Who upholds them right now? It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In all of our lives, in here, right now, we all have life, don't we? If he wanted to, all of it could be taken away in an instant with a snap of his finger. He's upholding all of our lives by the word of his power. And not only us, but all the 8 billion people in the world and all the animals and all the trees and the vegetation, every living thing has its life from Christ and is sustained day after day after day according to his will, by his power, by the word of his power. Everything dependent on Jesus Christ. Colossians 1. You see that the apostle has a very high view of Christ. He does not have low, mean thoughts of Christ. He has very high thoughts of Jesus Christ. And this is the way that we should think of him. Amen. And when we, when we are seeing Christ in this way, when our eyes are fixed on this Christ, then our faith is going to be stable. It's going to be firm. It's going to be unshakable. Because the object of our faith, that's the key. The object of our faith must be this Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything has been created through him and for him. Everything in this world, even Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, they're all doing the will of Christ, whether they like it or not, whether they know it or not, they're doing his will. He is before all of them, and all of them are held together by his power. 
Everything that happens in this world happens by the divine power of Christ. And if he has the power to create the world, and he has the power to uphold the world, then does he not have the power to help us when we're suffering? Doesn't he have the power to give us strength, to deliver us from those who torment us, to bring us into his eternal kingdom? Of course he does. And wouldn't it be very foolish to forsake this Christ, the creator and sustainer of the world, in order to avoid a little momentary light affliction? It would be very foolish indeed. This is why, at the very beginning, the apostle is putting before them the Lord Jesus Christ. This is who needs to be the object of their faith. They need to see him in this way. Next, he says, when he had made purification for sins. Here, the things that he has said previously, right, are true concerning the divine nature of Jesus Christ. According to his divinity, he is the radiance of the Father's glory. According to his divinity, he is the exact representation of his nature. These things are true of Jesus as the Son of God. But not only is he the Son of God, he is also the Son of Man. He is both fully God and fully man in the one person, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And as a man, Jesus took on a human nature like ours. He took on human flesh. As it says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The divine word of God, the eternal son of God, who is equal to the father in nature, took on human flesh like ours. He became a man. And when he did this, he did not cease to be the eternal God. He continued to be the son of God. But at the incarnation, he also became the son of man. He took on a flesh and nature like ours, in all ways, except one, in that he was without sin. And why was this necessary? Well, because of what it says in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save sinners. He came to redeem his people. He did not come to show us how valuable we are. He did not come to give us high self-esteem so that we would feel good about ourselves. He came to purify his people from their sins. Because his people, in their natural state, they're not clean. In the natural state, his people are sinners. Because we've all gone astray. We've all sinned against God. We all are unclean. So it is necessary, if his people are going to enter into his kingdom, if he's going to bring them to eternal glory, bringing many sons to glory, then they must be purified of their sins. And it was necessary for this to take place. We are impure, we are unclean because of our sins, and we need to be purified, and he is the source of that purification. Isaiah 64, 6 says, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf. In our iniquities, like the wind, Take us away. We are all like someone who's unclean. Our righteousness, if you would even call it that, yeah. according to the prophet, is filthy garments in the sight of God. We have many iniquities. And how high do our sins reach? They reach up to the very heavens themselves. And if God would hold our sin against us, who could stand before him? So we need to be purified because of our sins. 
And the only way that we can be purified from our unrighteousness is by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, taking on human flesh and then dying on the cross for our sins, shedding his blood to purify us from our sins. Notice Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also took of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. He had to be made like his brothers in every way. The children have flesh and blood, impure flesh and blood. So he had to take on flesh and blood in order to purify us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. And it says in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Jesus made purification for sin through his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. He came to die, to die on the cross for our sins as a substitute, as a propitiation for the sins of his people. And then, after he made purification, what did he do? Well, notice what he says. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. When he ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. This denoting the position of highest honor and authority. The only position higher is the throne of God, the throne of God the Father. And Christ occupies the position of highest honor, of highest authority, right there at the right hand of God the Father. And he sets because his work is complete. There is nothing left, nothing necessary that needs to be done in order to accomplish our redemption, to accomplish the salvation of his people. Everything necessary for him to be given a name that is above every other name, all of this has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. There's nothing else that he needs to do in order to bring about the fulfillment of God's eternal decree to give to him the kingdom of God. All has been fulfilled and accomplished by Christ. There's nothing left to be done by him. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. It's all accomplished. His work, his death, his resurrection was final. It was sufficient payment for the sins of his people. And this is why it says in Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Right now, at this very moment, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our elder brother, our spiritual husband, who is the head of the church, he is sitting right now at the right hand of God the Father. And who is he interceding for there? He's interceding for us. So is he unaware of the sufferings that we're going through? Is he un unaware of what we're experiencing in this life? No, of course not. 
He is perfectly aware of all that his people are enduring. He is sitting there right now reigning and ruling as king over all things, waiting for the day that God the Father will make all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. Between the first and second coming of Christ, Jesus sits because his work is complete. And now it is simply a matter of time until God the Father puts all things in subjection under his feet. And while he is waiting there, he's not waiting because something else needs to be done. He's not waiting because he needs some other power to come along and finish what he started. Because he didn't have the authority or power to subject the world to himself. So he's waiting for some other authority to arise to finish what he started. The delay is not because something is lacking. We know this because he's sitting down. If something else was needed, he would not be sitting the delay then is not because something is lacking. The delay is for our benefit. It is for our good. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8. It says, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Though he is sitting at the right hand of God and all authority has been given to him and everything necessary for the subjection of the world to Christ has taken place. We do not yet in this present world see all things subjected to him yet in the full final manifestation. Aren't there still many wicked people in the world who are ranting and raving against Christ? Isn't the world still filled with sin? Isn't death still a reality for the people of God? Isn't Satan still on the prowl looking someone to devour? All of these enemies, the enemies of Christ, the enemy of his people, they still exert some influence in this world. Now, of course, this is not independent from Christ. They're not doing these things outside of the will of Christ, or outside of his authority. They're working under his authority, but they don't, they don't want to do his will, but he forces them to do his will. And they're doing evil. They meant it for evil, even though Christ turns their evil for our good. But they have not yet been fully destroyed. Everything necessary for their, their destruction has been accomplished. In due time, they will be destroyed. But now, right now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Christ allows this to continue for a time for us, for our benefit. And what is the benefit? It's for our testing. Don't we need to be tried? Don't we need to be purified of the sin that remains within us? Don't the people of God need to be sanctified? And what is the means that he uses to sanctify us? It is through many tribulations that you must enter into the kingdom of God. We need to prove our faith through our endurance, through our perseverance. And it is in between his first and second coming that we must suffer for Christ and remain faithful to him through many tribulations. And while we wait... We must keep our eyes always focused on him and we can never forsake him. We can never turn away from Christ. We can never abandon him, even if it means that we have to suffer the loss of all things. Because in due time, God will reward his people and he will subject all of his enemies to the feet of Christ. And not only to his feet, but who else's feet? To ours as well. As it says in Psalm 58, that the righteous will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. He will give to us the kingdom of God if we are faithful.
to him. But if we abandon him, if we forsake him, then he will forsake us. He will turn on us. Not that he truly ever, we truly ever belong to him, but he will reward us in like manner. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's what we must do. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. And who is the Jesus Christ that we must keep our eyes fixed on? It is the Jesus Christ who God has appointed heir of all things, through whom the world is made, who is the radiance of his glory, who is the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power, who made purification for sins, and who now is sitting at the right hand of majesty on high. That is the one that we need to keep our eyes on. And if we do, then what is there that will cause us to stumble and fall away? What can a man do to us? Nothing apart from the will of Christ. So then, let us have that as our objective in our life, through our studies, to see Christ in this way, to see the supremacy of Christ over all things, and to never forsake or abandon him. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, how it so clearly reveals to us Lord, everything that is necessary for life and salvation. Lord, we thank you that you have appointed your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, to be the savior of the world. Lord, to be the one who would come and die on the cross for the sins of his people and be resurrected for their justification. Lord, that he is the source of salvation. He is the only way that we who are so impure, Lord, so sinful and diseased. Lord, the only way that we could be purified and cleansed of all of our filth is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that you have sent him into the world, Lord, in order to bring about our salvation. And Lord, also to raise him up to this position of highest honor, not only as the son of God, but also as the son of man. And that now, at the right, your right hand, he sits there as our mediator, the perfect mediator between God and man. One who can fully represent you, being that he is the eternal son of God. And one who can also fully represent us, since he was made like us in every way except without sin. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided such a savior, such a mediator, Lord, one who is a great high priest over the household of God. And Lord, we know that if we've believed in him, that Lord, there is no sin that remains and that it is impossible that you will not grant to him all that he desires. We know that he desires to bring all of his people to glory. Lord, to raise them from sin and from death and to grant to them eternal life. 
And so, Father, we have every reason, Lord, so many reasons, to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And, Lord, to hold fast to Him throughout this life. Lord, we pray that we would have a proper perspective of suffering, Lord, of hardships and trials. Lord, seeing that these are not contrary to your will, but that these are gifts that you grant to your people for our purification. Lord, we still have sin that remains and we need to be purified. And we thank you, Lord, that you as a loving father know how to discipline your children. Lord, for our benefit, in order to produce righteousness within us. So, Lord, may we not grow weary. Lord, may we not grumble under your hand of discipline, but rather may we receive it, Lord, with humility and submission. Lord, seeing that it comes from our loving Father, Lord, who knows what is best for us, Lord, who knows how to care for us, and Lord, how to sanctify us best. And Lord, may we never abandon Jesus Christ. Lord, even if the whole world turns against us, Lord, may we hold fast to him, even if we're the only one. Lord, give to us this faith. Lord, give to us such confidence. Grant to your people the endurance and the perseverance that we need that we might enter into the kingdom of God. And may we never grow weary in doing good. Thank you again, Father, for sending your son and for making him the heir of all things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.